today on in the house we have a very special guest with us we have nicole blair nicole is an architect and general contractor working in austin texas her practice focuses mainly on residential small commercial and public art building projects her projects have received design awards at the local state and international levels and her work has been published by architectural record Dwell and Texas Architect. We got Nicole on today because of her amazing design talent and her ability to think critically and think outside of the box, literally. Um, One of her projects featured on this year's AIA tour was The Perch, which I got to go tour, and it's amazing. So I'll post plenty of pictures so people can follow along. Nicole's ability to work within these tight boundaries and very tight constraints and think critically and solve the problem of how to add an addition to this bungalow and not interrupt the surrounding area and not destroy the backyard and uh, all while the clients are still living there um, is is an amazing feat and so we got her on because we wanted to really dive deep into that project and figure out what some of the challenges were and how they went about solving it. Uh, We also talked about an earlier project called The Hive, where it was a similar situation. Um, Very tight constraints um, and very small footprint that she had to work with. So again, we dive into the construction process and and the design and the thought process behind uh, why the building looks the way it does. Uh, Another project that we talk about is the Lincoln Chapel, that one stuck out particular to me because of the form and just the, the beauty in its simplicity. Uh, it really looks like a, uh, an origami shape or an origami crane, if you will, but it's all poured monolithically out of concrete. So it really gives you an appreciation for how it was constructed and, and the design and really the thought that went into every, the smallest little detail in that project. We hope you like this episode. If you do, please share with a friend and give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much Thanks for, for having joining me. Us. Well, um, I'm, I'm really interested to, to hear about your story and, and your background and how you came to where you born and raised here in Texas, or you native Texan, or uh, did you move here? You know, tell us your story. Which where should I begin? I was I was anywhere. You start. Okay. Well, we've got enough time. You, okay. you take your time and tell us your tell us your story. Yeah, I mean, I um, I was um, born in Austin, and um, I guess my interest in architecture started um in junior high believe it or not okay i was um i went to at the junior high that i was attending they had a career fair in the gymnasium which i guess a lot of us (laughs) remember and experience Mm -hmm. yeah and there was an architecture table with um a big crisp white clean beautiful model and four or five architects standing behind the table talking about what a great profession it was for women um, talking about that it was a great profession for people that loved art and also were good at math. Um, so that kind of resonated with me and mm-hmm. 
think it just clicked when I saw that. I thought that's that's what I want to do. Were you were you always kind of into art? Was that was that your thing or? I think I I liked things that were artistic um, early on. Like I appreciated things that had kind of an artistic quality, but mm -hmm. I I wasn't painting or drawing like on a regular basis, anything like that. I just, it was really that model that when in seeing that model that I thought, this is something I'm, I'm interested in, in learning more about. Yeah. Um, and then what ended up happening was um, when I got to high school, I mean, back then there weren't as many options for electives, um, but I took some things like drafting and some art classes and photography. Yeah. And took more math classes, and then um, I started looking into universities that had architecture programs like UT, and I discovered that a lot of the architecture programs that, um, or universities that had good architecture programs also had summer architecture programs for high school students. Oh, cool. So after my sophomore year of high school, um, I did a six-week architecture um, program at UT during the summer, which was like an overnight. Have you have you heard, have you guys heard about these mm -hmm. yeah. programs? Like mm -hmm. I think it was called the Summer Discovery Program. Mm -hmm. Okay, great opportunity. Yeah. Did you did did either of you do anything like that? I haven't. I've heard of them though. Okay, so after my sophomore year, I did a six week program at UT, and um, it was taught by an architect named Derek Barsinski. I think he might still even be practicing in Austin. <laughs> Had a house on the Hemisphere maybe ten years ago. Um, and I just fell in love with the problem solving, like yeah. the design aspect, just the idea of having this problem that you then get to kind of creatively solve and yeah. learning about architects and how they solved different problems through, through construction, through building. Um, and I was just kind of hooked. Yeah. I mean, it's like a big 3d puzzle. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. I think that's kind of what hooked me as well. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously more on the construction side, but um, yeah, be, being able to take a problem and figure out a creative solution to, to work around it. But uh, yeah, exactly. That's well, that's, yeah, go that's, ahead. That's a cool program. No, I'm, I'm, yeah. I've definitely like Adrian. I'm, I didn't do a program like that myself, but I have heard of those um, that are out there. So that's that's really cool. That yeah. you know, they kind of open it up to to high schoolers and. <clears throat> is it go younger? Like, is it any is it just open to high schoolers or? So I don't know what they're doing now. I mean, that was a, quite a while ago, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that was probably, you know, thirty years ago that I did that program. Um, I think at the time they were expecting it to be high school juniors and seniors. Mm -hmm. But since I already had an interest, um, I asked to do it after my sophomore year, and they let me into the program. Obviously, that's just one year difference. Yeah. Um, but then the next year. Uh, because I love that one so much, the next year I did one in the summer at the Rhode Island School of Design. Wow. Um, okay. Which they also had, you know, they had also had a summer program. So, um, and then I fell in love with it even more. And then when I was at the Rhode Island School of Design, you know, everyone was talking about Cornell and how great Cornell University was for an architecture school. Yeah. So it kind of um, put that in my head that that was where people that were really serious about architecture would be going to school. So um, in high school, I applied to a bunch of programs, but when I got into Cornell, I just knew that's where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe you already know this um, from reading some of my bio, I got there and it wasn't what I was expecting. Really? So yeah, so I think I had 
had such a great experience at UT and at the Rhode Island School of Design. I just was expecting it to be um, that great or better. And when I got to the university, they were going through a lot of changes. The dean had recently stepped down. A lot of the faculty that was pretty well known had been stepping back. And the school seemed really disorganized. Um, And I didn't really like the classes that I was in my first semester. It didn't have the same structure or rigor that I had at UT and at RISD. So I pretty quickly decided it wasn't the right architecture school for me, but I fell in love with the university. Mm -hmm. It was a um, beautiful campus. Um, I was already meeting so many amazing people. Very different to be in upstate New York than in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had never seen snow. Like, the <laughs> snow was, like, falling like it did, you know. And I felt like I was in, like, a Peanuts cartoon with, like, these, like, big, Fluffy huge chunks. Yeah, flakes big of flakes. snow falling. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. Um, are, you cr- are you close to the Great Lakes up there? Oh, yeah, very close. You get that lake, that lake effect snow, right? Like, that's some serious, serious snowfall, right? I mean, the very first time it snowed, I felt like I was in, like, a cartoon. <laughs> it was absolutely stunning. Yeah. And it just, like, I think a foot of snow fell. And it was, like, it was before, um, it was, like, before Halloween, you know? It was, like, wow. huge amounts of snowfall. Right, right. And I was, like, where am I? It's, like, it was, it felt like a dream. <laughs> So I really kind of fell in love with the university, and I thought it was sort of strange to be a freshman at that point. I felt like I had this focus for so long of like, I want to be an architect. I really want to be an architect. I'm finally at this place where I can study architecture. And I didn't like the architecture program. And so I thought maybe it would be good to know something else besides architecture. Hmm. Um, So uh, at Cornell, they'll put you... Like, when you know you want to leave your major, they don't automatically let you stay at the university. They, they put you kind of in, kind of like in no man's land for a semester. They let you take classes where, anywhere throughout the university that you want to take them. But then you have to apply to that new department, and you either get accepted or rejected. So you have, like, one semester That's to cool make that, that decision. That's cool that they do that, though. That, that's pretty cool. Like yeah. If, if you're unsure about what you want to do, you know, you're not tied down to one thing, and they kind of give you that break to be able to... To figure it out. Yeah, and I don't... I, is UT the same way? Like, you get accepted to a particular program. You can't just all of a sudden, like, get accepted into the architecture school and then, like, transfer to radio, television, and film, right? You probably have to... That I don't know. Then apply. I, I went to Baylor, and okay. I started pre-med and realized that I wasn't going to be... I wasn't going to do that, and I switched straight over to business school. And they let... And that wasn't... The, they were fine with it. But it was okay. also a while ago. I think it was about the same time that you were at school, and... Things were a lot easier back then. Right. Yeah. No, for me, I mean, I I, I kind of had a, a weird journey. I mean, I, I actually went to the uh, the Air Force Academy, um, and I wanted to get into mechanical engineering, and I I didn't quite have the grades for it, um, and so I I kind of felt stuck there. I didn't really have. I wasn't able to declare the the major that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just felt like the, the best choice at that time was just to leave. And um, so I went back home for a while and then I wound up at A&M. And I actually did want to go into architecture. That, that was kind of my next plan was I, I'd always been interested in design and architecture. 
Um, but just the the feeling, at least in in my mind, the image that I had was an architect just you know was inside all day, you know, drawing plans and and whatnot. And I was like that didn't really appeal to me. I wanted to be outside in the field, and I, I declared uh, construction science, um, and that's under the School of Architecture at, at A&M, hmm. and that seemed more at my alley, and I had no idea what it was. I was like, construction science, cool. I'll just do that, and so the rest is history. Um, so you, you eventually graduate Cornell, right? And yeah, so I ended up so I ended up in a major called textile and apparel management. That was my official yeah, major. I, to, I was Did curious. you already know about this? I okay. was curious about that. I was okay. like <laughs> So tell me about that. So I I picked that major because at Cornell um, I could do a full business sequence. So it was kind of like getting a business undergrad degree. Oh. It was tied um, to at Cornell, they call it the Agricultural Economics Department, but that's basically like the undergraduate business department when I was there. Um, so I took it, so textile and apparel management took that business sequence. It was also loosely tied with the interior design department at Cornell. Okay. They, it was in a college that was originally home economics, right? So they, of course, so like textiles mm-hmm. and interior design, and it was like a whole bunch of different majors that had originally started as a college for women that women were accepted to. So, okay. so they were already loosely side by side with each other at this in this college. So I could take a lot of classes in both of those departments and still fulfill requirements. Okay. But it was also a loose enough major, which was which was not common at Cornell, um, that I could also study abroad. For a semester and still graduated in four years even though I had started on the architecture school for a semester and um, I studied abroad with Syracuse University with their architecture students and we studied in Florence and I took architecture classes with their architecture students and I took art history classes and I took um, I did a boutique class and (laughs) I took a cooking class and it was just amazing yeah, that sounds amazing. It was incredible. <laughs> Super cool. And I think, yeah, and even though all, during that whole time, there was, in the back of my head, I was like, you want to be an architect? Like, what are, <laughs> what are you doing in textiles and apparel? Um, I, think I think now, in retrospect, I can see how a lot of that training and those courses that I took and the travel and other people that I met, how it all like ends up relating to the buildings that I designed today and I think making them richer than if I had just only stayed in architecture. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it definitely makes more well-rounded. Um, but I mean, especially yourself, you're handling the entire scope of the project, right? I mean, you're, you're designing not only, you know, the, the exterior and, and, and all the exterior elevations, you're looking at the interior too. And then you're building, right? I mean, so, I mean, you're, you're, really handling the entire thing from start to finish. Well, I think it de- it depends on the project, so I don't I don't general contract all of my projects. Okay. I only I probably general contract a quarter of them. So it's really only a, a handful of them that I get to general contract. And I've general contracted a few projects for other people where I wasn't the only architect involved. Um so I've done that as well. Um but I've discovered that when I have the opportunity to be the architect and the general contractor that the end product comes out better um, and 
Yeah, and then, and I get. Uh, I usually have a better relationship with the client, mm-hmm. sure, because um, it's more involved and direct. And um, I realize that, you know, kind of coming back to that problem solving, I get um, like during construction, ideas will come up or things will come up. Even thinking about these projects for months, if not years, and you know, if you're intimately involved with it day to day while it's being constructed and you already know what the design intent is and exactly what the client wants. Mm-hmm. You know, I found that I can take advantage of some opportunities that come up during construction that would be, that are a lot harder to do on the projects where I'm not general contracting them. Yeah. Well, and the, the depth of knowledge that gives you on the next project and moving forward yes. for, for you to be an architect and a builder, the, the cross pollination of information there. Because then on your next project, you're taking constructability knowledge into that next design. I, I think it's incredible. Yeah. Me too. It's really fun. And, I, and it's definitely, I'm definitely not working alone because as you all know from the construction industry, it's like I'm learning from subcontractors. Mm-hmm. I'm finding out what they're good at. I'm finding out what they like to do, what they really want to be doing. And then I can incorporate some of those things on the next project or it's within the project itself. Yeah. And structural engineers, and there's other consultants at different. And you know, when I'm picking lighting, I'm like talking to a lighting designer sometimes. Um, and then, and if I can work with some of these same subs on project after project, mm-hmm. then that creates even more efficiencies and more opportunities for the project to be better. Yeah, I mean, speaking of efficiency, I mean, you definitely since you're wearing all of the hats. I mean, you don't have to. Um, you know, make a selection and then wait on an approval and, and, and all that. Like you're, you're doing all that yourself. So, I mean, there's just immediate uh, feedback and you can just pr- proceed, you know, definitely super efficient. Yeah. It gives uh, me a lot. It, it really helps with budgets really yeah. because like <clears throat> when I see an opportunity that's going to cost more, I know immediately what things we can cut back on that we haven't ordered yet that we don't that aren't necessarily as crucial to the, like the end product and a lot of times you know every everyone is on a budget to some mm-hmm. degree and mm-hmm. it's important to be able to have that kind of flexibility where you can say i'd love to spend five thousand dollars more on this than we thought but i have here's five ideas for how we could save five thousand mm-hmm. dollars and so you know i think clients appreciate that um and it goes along, you know, it, it's it's helpful, um, yeah, in just being able to have that kind of control. Why did you choose that model of being more more design build versus just that, that traditional, you know, architect and then, you know, um, bringing in a builder, you know, that, that whole model? Why, why did you? I think what Lonnie's asking in a nutshell is why would you want to take on the headache of building the project? <laughs> yes, yes, <that's> correct. <laughs> Well, I don't, I mean, I, I love being able to do that. Um, it doesn't feel like a headache to me. I mean, the he- like what feels like a headache to me is when I have a project and there's a contractor and I don't get the phone call, like when there's a problem that has to be solved. Mm-hmm. Like that's when I like start having sleepless nights and, um, which does happen. I, um, I have a project under construction right now in LA and I'm, I'm far away from that project. Um, I know I'm not as involved in the day to day in decision making as I want to be. And 
um, and, and as I could be if it was a project that was closer to home. So, and, and, and part of what, part of what ended up, the reason I got into it initially is because I had projects that I thought aesthetically were really interesting and kind of compelling from a design standpoint. And when they got bid out, they were too expensive. And so they'd get shelved. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, like, I think if I can talk to the subcontractors myself and explain why it's different, but also why it's similar, those prices won't be, feel like unknowns. Mm-hmm. Like, I think what I felt like was happening was there was maybe a miscommunication between the contractor that was bidding it and the subcontractors they were working with. And them thinking it was a whole lot more complicated than it really was. And so I wanted to have that conversation more directly with them. But, but also to answer your question, like, I don't see myself as a design build firm at all. That actually is not how I operate. I only agree to do design for a client. Mm-hmm. And then only after we have a complete design, like a bid set construction, like basically bid close to construction set, do I even consider possibly the option of contracting it? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I never agree up front to be the designer and the builder of a right. project. Right. Because I really only, I mean, I'm only one person. I can only take on small projects. I can only take on projects that are pretty close to my house, like within a couple of miles. Sure. I can't, I can't take on projects that are... I don't know. There's a whole lot of, you know, there's a certain type of client I feel like is the right client for me. It has to be a client that's not in a hurry. Mm. Like, because it's just me. And if that client is on a really tight timeline, I am not the right contractor for them. Because I don't have subs that are that responsive. Because that are only working for me. I don't have subs that are going to show up the next day all the time. I mean, Mm. I think there, there are people that I like. There are people that I find are responsive. But, um, but the projects I end up contracting take, I would say in general, take longer than if you hired like a, like a bigger operation. So other than just, I mean, proximity to, to like where you live, I mean, what are some other criteria? What, what makes you take that jump from, you know, architect to builder? (laughs) I think for me, it has to be something where I feel like I'm personally going to be able to add value as an architect to the build. So it has to be already a design that I think is maybe already a little bit atypical that's going to make some contractors like afraid to get involved. Mm-hmm. Or make the, the kind of project where the contractors would be like, that's going to be expensive. Like <laughs> that kind of response from another builder is the one where I'm like, okay, maybe that's the one that's worth. Because I know that as the designer, I know the project better than anyone. Yeah. So I can explain like, oh, I know might, this might look crazy, but... I pr- like, you know, that you can kind of explain how something is more typical. Yeah. And you can work with them to make it m- more typical. Like, if if it is something that is more complicated to build, like, a good subcontractor is going to work with you to simplify it, to, to make it, to, ma- to make it uh, more practical, which is important. Yeah. Like, I, there shouldn't, I don't believe in designing or building something crazy because it's crazy like if there has to be a really good reason for why you're doing what you're doing yeah well, well speaking of crazy and uh and problem solving 
Uh, this kind of gets me into your recent, well, I, I say recent because this was actually built how, how many years ago? We finished it in 2021. Okay. Like, like literally they moved in to like, I think one day before that freeze, that oh, 2020 really? wow. February freeze. Yes. I was afraid that the water heater was going to explode <laughs> oh, and we yeah. were going to have to deal with like, yeah, but no, it was, it turned out to be fine. So for everybody listening, um, this last, or sorry, this, this year's home tour, the AIA home tour, uh, Nicole had a house on the tour called The Perch, and I will be posting pictures and, and links online, you know, for everybody to, uh, to look at and, and follow along. But um, yeah, I mean, let's really get into this, because talk about, I, I mean, trying to convince a contractor like hey you know hear me out i'm, I'm gonna build a house on top of another house and it, they're not gonna be touching um so yeah let's figure this out what was the problem that you were trying to solve here and, and why did you take this approach okay so the problem that was stated by the client was you know, like this was really the only solution when, if when you take all the problems that they gave me, they said, you know, the, the owner is, the husband is a landscape designer, landscape architect. So he's like, we love our yard. And you can't even tell from these photographs because this was after the freeze. They lost all of their landscaping in that freeze. Oh, no. So like 90% of it. So the, if you can imagine this site was completely covered with greenery. I mean, when the perch was built, I could send you a picture for if you're going to post this on your podcast. Mm-hmm. It was completed, and I took. There's a Google Street View of the project where you can only see the tiny little tip of the top of the perch because all of the plants, the trees, the the greenery is completely covering the perch. Yeah. So what happened was we built it all behind this, like, basically this green screen in a way, right? And then the freeze happened, and it was almost like a curtain dropped, and the whole neighborhood could see this structure. But you couldn't see it during construction. And so um, the owners basically said, we love our landscape. We don't really want you to touch it. Mm -hmm. They said, we love our bungalow house. We don't want to move out. We really don't want you to touch that either. Um, we also love our backyard so much. We would love to have this little studio space, this extra space. We might use it for guests, for other things. We don't want it with a bunch of views to our backyard. We want some privacy in our backyard still. Like we see this as maybe guests will be there sometimes, maybe clients. Could it not face the backyard? Um, and then I just <laughs> went and, and, you know, they wanted it to be about this size, right? They wanted it to function maybe as a guest house, maybe as a workspace, maybe, you know, they wanted to be flexible to kind of take on any function they would need that didn't fit in the bungalow below. Yeah. And it's, it's 660 square feet, right? So that's a, that's a good size bonus space. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially, I mean, and the spaces are so small. I mean, those, the living room, the kitchen, those bedrooms, they're all less than 10 feet wide. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty compact and they feel bigger because of the height. Um, but essentially there wasn't any other place I could think on the site to fit it except above the bungalow. Uh So I, and I thought if we're not going to touch the bungalow and they're still going to live there, 
let's just raise it above the bungalow. Let's stay, just hug that city of Austin setback tent. I think we hugged it a little bit too close. <laughs> Next time I keep it in a little few more inches. That's such a good shot right there. Yeah. But that's, um, that was essentially, that, that, that was the plan. And I think, you know, I built a physical model of it. I can send you a picture of that too. I yeah, share absolutely. that a lot. Okay. I share this, I, I presented for, in schematic design, our very first meeting, I presented like a physical model of it. Wow. And I have a picture of the client. I have several pictures of the client at that meeting, like looking at the model and all around it. And I think they just got it. You know, it's like, they're like, you did, you solved this problem that we didn't think was solvable. Yeah. That's kind of an impossible scenario. It's like, Hey, can you build us a, another, uh, basically a second floor, but don't touch the house and don't touch the backyard. So that's, that's really super creative. Um, cause that was my first thought was like, why not, why not just add a second floor, you know, but that makes sense, you know, the way you describe it. And I think I have to give a lot of credit to the structural engineer. Like, even though this was a concept, I thought there were going to be more columns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Four columns. That's yeah. it. That's no, incredible. I, if you look at my model, you'll see like six or eight, you know, holding it up. Yeah. And I did not think it would work with four. I mean, that was their engineering and them being creative. And I also thought those columns, you know, I didn't know how they were going to impact the bungalow below. It was the structural engineer's idea to run the columns into existing walls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Through existing walls, which of course makes a lot of sense um, because running them through existing walls allowed them to use those walls um, to su as support walls mm -hmm. for the structure. And then what you don't see here is we dug... Oh, that was my huge, next way. I was going to ask about huge that. Huge five by five by three foot deep footings under each one of those columns. Yeah. So I have some pretty incredible pictures of people digging holes underneath the house where their head is completely covered. Um, it, they're completely below grade. So we love to brag about amazing trades. Yeah. Who was the structural engineer? So if the, you don't mind telling No, the, structure, the structural engineer deserves so much credit. They're amazing. Um, and they also did, um, if you go to the AIA website and you look at, um, like we did a webinar for the home store, the structural engineer and I are talking about the perch in oh, okay. that webinar. So if anyone's interested in kind of learning more about it. Um, but it's uh, Structures PE. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Stoltz was the head engineer. He's actually engineered all of my projects. I've mm. Yeah, they're, they're good. doing my own thing for 20 years now, and he's uh, he's engineered all, he's engineered like 80, 90% of my projects. And so then they did the design who executed all the steel work, because that's another feat. Exactly. And of course, we're so lucky in Austin, Drop yeah. House. Uh, of drop course house it's Drop House. <laughs> of course. Yes. They make it so Those. easy. They Those did the handrailing too, didn't they? On the front no, there, on the steps. Actually, they didn't. They didn't. So they did. They did all the structural steel, uh -huh. and then um, we. It was quite a long time later that we did um, like the the staircase and others, like smaller steel elements inside. Mm -hmm. And I had talked to them about it, but um, they and but they might have ended up being the people. It ended up being a smaller um, outfit. Um, like kind of a one-man show. Um, his name is uh, Tim Schmidt, and he ended up contacting me while it was under construction and was like, I really love what you're doing, you know, if you need any help. And it just turned out he was like, I had known him prior, who's moving back to Austin. 
And I said, well, come to think of it, we're like at the point where we need to do this staircase. And we were making some design decisions about the staircase in the field. Like as we're, as we were building other elements, I was showing the client, you know, options for the staircase. And so we had kind of decided what they would be right around the same time Tim called. And I said, okay, bid this. And he, he was also great. It was great to have him on site. It's hard to believe one person built that entire, built the, like the treads, the risers, the mm-hmm. railing. Yeah. A lot um, of detail work. Yeah. But he, he, it turned out, I mean, Drop House would have done an amazing job too. And I can give, you know, Drop House deserves some credit for also some of their ingenuity. So yeah. the structural steel, just the frame of it and the columns, again, the client didn't want to use the yard for staging area. Um, so, and so I was worried about the structural steel. Um, and Drop House had the idea to build all of the structural steel offsite. Maybe they, they probably do this pretty often, build it all offsite. They separated it and they came up with the idea to uh, separate it into three pieces that fit on a flatbed truck. And then we picked one day where we rented the truck, we closed down the street, we rented the crane, and they assembled, they bolted and welded the whole thing into place. Started at sunup, ended at sundown. Wow. Yeah. (coughs) One day. Those guys are amazing. They do some really phenomenal work. Yeah. Uh, So, where's the air conditioner? So, okay, so the, okay, so do you, so, um... So, so because this, the, the vaulted space above is vaulted ceiling, right? That's mm-hmm. where you would normally see it. So what's different about the perch is that space below, right? Mm-hmm. That, and so the, so the AC unit runs front to back in that, um, in that angled space below on the second floor. Below the floor here? So it's below, it's really to the right of that, right? Oh, because okay. it's right, so if you, if you scroll up to that front cantilevered room... So that on that upper that upper level is a fl- is a flat floor, right? Mm-hmm. The floor is flat. The um, that space below that runs front to back yeah. r- hold, r- holds the HVAC yeah. system right there. That one, and I guess probably this one too. Then that no, actually further to the so right. So it's all it's all it's, it's all just there. there front to back. Yeah, and okay. so and actually, if you look at some of the interior shots, all of the registers on the second floor are in the floor and all the registers on the um first floor here okay so if you stop at this so do you see that row exactly that exactly that row of circles in that wall on the other side of that wall is the HVAC, hvac unit and actually from this view right here on the front porch you can see the door to the HVAC no unit. No kidding. I didn't even right see that when I was there. In yeah. the, on the porch. Do you see the hinges mm-hmm. there? Yeah. So if you open that door, you'll, the unit is sitting right there. That's so cool. Yeah. And then the ductwork runs front to back right behind there. And yeah. the vents are in the toe kick of, of wow. the cabinetry in the kitchen. And they're right there on that wall in the living room. That's amazing. Where's the, the condenser, the exterior unit? So you you can't see it from any of these pictures. So if you go if you go back to that stair view again from the front, let's see if you oh you can see it from here. Okay, so do you see so that? Oh, condition. I see it there. Exactly. So do you see so you see the four columns that are holding up the perch, right? Yeah. Do you see the column in the back? 
right aligned right directly behind that column are three pipes sleeved with stainless uh, sleeved with like um metal and there's yeah. three pipes that carry that. water sewer gas electric that was my next question okay so all right. on a line there so I was trying to, and the, and what's great about that is they feed directly down into the existing, what was what used to be the water heater closet of the old bungalow. That's mm-hmm. now their mechanical closet. Wow. That's so no mechanicals run through the columns themselves. No, no, those are all structural, just structural. and just structural. Um, but there's three sleeved pipes behind there that That's carry. Impressive. Yeah, they're all hidden of that. well. Super hidden. Thanks. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> it, it was in the perfect spot, right? Because it, it just ha- I lucked out on that one, right? Because the mechanical closet was right below, right in the best place to hide them. Who did the mechanicals or the or the design? It's an HVAC guy that mostly does residential. I think his name is Thomas Ehrlich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said it. He was like, "Oh yeah, this is very straightforward." <laughs> it looks it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's super neat, and so. Talk a little bit, I guess, if you can, about kind of the materiality and some of the, the choices that you made as far as, you know, using this corrugated, is that Corten? Uh, we bought it as raw steel okay. and then we let it weather in place, right. which okay. is which is more affordable. Right. And um, Way easier to punch out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty affordable material and we bought it from Western States Metal Roofing. Maybe you guys mm-hmm. know about them out mm-hmm. of Arizona. It's probably, they're probably the most affordable place that I know of to buy <clears throat> a material like that. And we were able to order it in complete panels, front to back, without seams. Oh, wow. Um, so that was, and so that also came on a flatbed truck. That's some long runs. Yeah, some very long runs. It's like all of this down here. Those that are is all continuous. one continuous, wow. front to back. We, I will, I mean, I will admit a, I always call it a construction error, mistake, whatever the kinds of things that happen. They started wrapping closer to the bottom and by the, like on the side that you see right here, basically the whole bottom is where they started. And then they wrapped around to the east side. And by the time they got to the ridge, they realized the framing wasn't quite square enough to like (laughs) fold over the ridge and to still be straight. So, um, so on the roof with this little pop out or that you can see on the side here Mm -hmm. for, Mm -hmm. um, some storage, we, we ended up having to run, um, that side as, as seems to the ridge. To, to mitigate the fact that framing wasn't quite square enough. Yeah. But it happens. It and does. it's just a yeah. little bit off. So, um, but yeah, but overall, but almost no seams. Almost no seams. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. What, what, what were some of the, the challenges as far as the construction side? Kind of like, what, what was the hardest part? I mean, is City give you any trouble with it? Yeah. Is it a unique design? Not so. What ended up happening with the city that was kind of funny was, and it kind of goes back to what you were asking about before. Um, I they when we submitted the drawings, they accidentally they it didn't occur to them that there was a gap there, even though it was very even though it was very clearly labeled and everything. It didn't. They read the drawings. I don't know how, as if it was an addition, mm-hmm. and um, so they the historic reviewers took issue with the fact that we were changing the bungalow that much. They took, they thought we weren't respecting the bungalow. And so they 
we were wondering why it was taking a long time in permitting and um, we finally got a notice in the mail from Historic saying they thought they, there should be a public hearing to, to like get public input to decide if we were, um, you know, if we were respecting the bungalow and, as enough um, with this addition. And that I had to, so when I got the letter, I called them and I was like, I had to explain, like, we, like, the owners love the bungalow so much, they didn't even want to touch it. Like, we're not, we're trying not to even touch it. And they just, did, they didn't, and then they, once they realized that, that what we were actually doing and that there was a gap, they were, they were actually happy and they just passed it really quickly. We didn't have to have a public hearing. Oh, super. Yeah. But, um, but the, enge- the engineer pointed out that, um, it, right when we submitted these drawings, it was at a time where the city had just started, decided to start reviewing some like residential projects as if they were commercial projects, like to review the structural more thoroughly. And the um, so Ryan Stoltz said that the city flagged this and that this became the very first project that that was residential that they that the city reviewed more closely uh-huh. and he had to submit a lot more um like many many more pages of calculations as if it was a commercial project uh-huh. um but he said that it became it was used as like a case study for i guess there's quite a bit of residential projects that are pretty like interesting and like maybe structurally more complicated than you might think a typical house is. Mm-hmm. So they, so they, there is, there are certain projects in residential now that get flagged for more, more structural review. So this and one was flagged for that. Should be for some of the structures that are getting designed and put out there from a safety standpoint. Somebody should check that. So, right. Yeah. 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 Probably good practice. So I think it was a lot more hours on his part that they weren't initially anticipating, but I think he was kind of proud to be the example. That's yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah, that's that's super neat. And like I said, just I, I was probably most excited to to come see this one because I just thought this was so creative mm-hmm. and I mean unique, literally outside of the box thinking, you know, and trying to float one structure over another. And I just thought it was super cool. So, but to the core of your design comments, that yeah, it isn't some crazy you know, engineered trust that goes out. It, it didn't, it's standard building materials, you know, relatively standard engineering all put in a unique package. That's what, yeah. that's what Ryan says. He said it, it really wasn't structurally. It's not that complicated. Sure. Even though it looks like it could be. I don't know if you got this comment a lot too, but that little, that desk space that kind of, and I'm, I'm sad there's no pictures of it right here, but there's a, Kind of in between one of the bedrooms and the bathrooms, there's like this little relief where you, you put in a desk and you're looking into kind of the downstairs area and there's a window dividing. So you get perfectly, you know, you can look out and see outside and inside at the same time. And I thought that was that was really cool. Yeah. That's one of my favorite spots yeah. in this space is... Um, is that little office nook because uh-huh. I think um, for me I design a lot of small spaces and what I find is if you can design an l- even smaller little nook space inside a small space the whole space will feel bigger mm-hmm. and um, so I kind of see that nook that way okay it's like you're in there and you're in this like very, you know it's a three foot wide space 
as soon as you walk out of that space, I think the whole rest of the perch feels a lot bigger than it normally would. Um, and then, just like you said, I think another thing that I love about that little node is that um, you can be sitting in like this three foot wide space with a desk, but you're right, you can see people coming up the stair, mm -hmm. like, and you're getting that light that's coming from outside, like onto the, onto the porch. And you can look down into the living room space. There's like a little bit of an angle to look down into living room, dining room, kitchen area. So you feel like you're kind of a, a, par a part of the bigger space yeah. when you're in this smaller space. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I like about that is I think that upper level, if that was like a, and like, let's say we just made the bathroom bigger sure. and that didn't exist, you, I think it would make the whole second floor feel smaller because there's something about like having two bedrooms and a bathroom there's something about having that little nook space that then like looks down to other spaces and kind of frees up mm -hmm. the your overall sense of the volume of that second floor yeah it definitely kind of steals or borrows some of that volume from from the the lower level and yeah it does make it feel more more open it makes, so i think you're i think you're spot on i think it's awesome yeah all of a sudden that second like like tiny little corridor with two pretty small rooms feels like spatially it's part of the bigger hole mm -hmm. just from that little tiny that three foot wide i think it's wonderful yeah it's awesome thanks um did, did you have anything else on this because I, I yeah not on this i I've, i i could we could talk about this <laughs> one the whole yeah. time but there are actually a lot of other things to talk about yeah you Let's have talk a, about an impressive else. portfolio oh thank you i appreciate that oh, especially sure. coming from from you um yeah, and I don't. I was kind of torn between talking about um, the what is this? The hive, the yeah, hive. the hive, yeah. and, which I think is super cool, like very kind of whimsical design. But this one really kind of grabbed my attention because of the Lincoln Chapel. The, yeah, the Lincoln Chapel, really, because this is all monolithic concrete, right? It is. Yeah. <laughs> Again, thanks to structures. Structures exactly. PE. So that's really, you know, and I, I follow you on Instagram, so I was able to kind of see some some more construction photos of this. Um, but that's really what, what grabbed me and, and pulled me towards this structure in particular was just the, the construction method. Um, if, if you could kind of shine a light on it and talk more about it, because you had to form both inside and outside and, and pour it all in one. So... Right. Yeah, what what was kind of the thought behind that? Like, and and maybe describe a little bit. Like, what what are we looking at? What is this? And okay, sure. Well, I will start off the bat and say, like, I did not GC this project. This project is in Georgetown. It's too way out of my zone, and I would have never <laughs> tried to GC this project um, based on where I was um, in my career at the time. Um, so this was GC. Uh, by a guy named Eric Untersee. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of like, again, like a one-man show, small outfit. Um, <clears throat> he was probably partially insane for agreeing to do this. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and um, it is, you know, this was built in large part based on um, his, his, like, blood, sweat, and tears, and ingenuity, and figuring out how to make this happen we definitely got many got a couple of bids from bigger concrete outfits that we might all be familiar with 
that were way out of budget for this client. And Eric said, you know, I think I'll give it a try. <clears throat> and, you know, there were many, many, <laughs> like, trials and tribulations and failures that occurred. Uh, this was all supposed to be exposed concrete. Um, and he kind of meticulously had figured out how to put some, like, I had, like, worked out the seams in the mm. concrete. Wow. In that. And, uh, but, it, and, and he, all the formwork was perfect with the seams that I had laid out. Um, yeah. But um, but the concrete pour didn't go as smooth as smoothly as it as anyone would have wanted it to, and so it was poured in three pours instead of one. Mm. So as soon as they took the four mark off, you could see those right. lines. Joints, you could yeah. see if you go to the chapel, you can see a big dent, like a big kind of like I don't know what you would call it, like a pucker that's inside. Mm -hmm. Um, from the formwork starting to fail with the first pour. Oh, wow. um, and yeah, it was a very scary. We were all out there. There was like, there was, <clears throat> the owner invited a bunch of friends to the concrete pour. <laughs> so there were like 20, 30 people out there, I think drinking wine. And it was very clear that the pour wasn't going well. And they had to stop it um, early. Um, so what ended up happening at the end was, um, again, this was on a, this, well, not again, this was on a pretty tight budget, believe it or not. Really? So at the end, the client, I think, traded some services at the site for, uh, to skim coat the whole thing in stucco at the very end. Okay. So uh, while on some level that was sad, it, um, it looks a lot better skim coated in this white. We probably should have realized that's what we were going to do and not like meticulously <laughs> thought about all of these yeah. seams and built it that way. Um, the white works. The it's white works. Pure. Yeah. Chapel. It's, 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 it screams the space. Yeah. Chapel for sure. And I've since, you know, seen all kinds of images of like one of my favorite buildings is, um, Frank Lloyd Wright's Guggenheim in New York. Mm -hmm. And if you, I've, you know, I have books that show the construction process of that, and you know, they also had some pretty rough-looking formwork and yeah. skim-coated the whole thing. Yeah. They also painted theirs. This is this one isn't painted. Oh, this is an integral. integral yeah, it's an integral color. Nice. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I yeah. Love that integral. Yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> that's is that you there? Yeah, that's me. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and awesome doors. What what was kind of the end use? Of, of this building, yeah. you know, is it just kind of a venue where people can go and yes. you know, any weddings. Yeah. So the, so the property, um, already hosted outdoor weddings, like uh -huh. large outdoor weddings. There's another, on the other end of this pretty large site, um, are a couple of locations for outdoor weddings. And then they have a, a house kind of building where they often do like receptions and the owners were getting requests for small ceremonies mm. and um, they didn't really have any place set up on site and the owners were um, a little bit religious too. So they, they were like, we kind of want like a small covered space that could work in any weather, but for like 30 guests or it was kind of what they were imagining. Um, and they they wanted it to feel non-denominational, but they also wanted it to feel religious mm -hmm. in some way, for like on some level. Um, and they had a really tight budget. So my thought was, they also had shown me 
a bunch of examples of, of churches, like small chapels that they liked. And one of them was a solid concrete structure that I was, and then they said, oh yeah, they liked the idea of it being a concrete structure. Hmm. And I thought that would be amazing, yeah. right? That would just be incredible. So I, um, so I thought, I knew that would be more expensive, yeah. but it would also be really good in terms of what they were wanting um, for it to be like low maintenance, for it, it could be less expensive in a lot of ways if it was mm -hmm. concrete as well, because mm -hmm. we could essentially make it an indoor outdoor space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to climate control it. It could take a lot of other costs out of the picture. And so what I thought of when I was designing was like, how small could I possibly make this structure so that it like, it's not a lot of actual concrete area mm -hmm. but that it still feels good for 30 people and then i of course i wanted to be a structure that's is so amazing that even people with like two or three or four hundred guests want to stay there so yeah um i had the idea to shape it. it actually i thought of this project that i had seen a lewis Sarmaki lewis project they did it was a very small restaurant in new york that sold hot dogs they had like 20 foot wide space and it was something like eight or ten feet tall and i had seen this um like lecture of their work and they said um to make like dash dogs feel bigger they made it smaller by creating this like forced perspective mm -hmm. inside the space and by creating this forced perspective on the f like raising the floor and slanting the walls when you walked into this space, it felt bigger, it felt longer, it felt deeper because they were, they're, they're, you know, taking yeah. advantage of like, an you know, illusion. something, an, exactly, yeah. an illusion that we're all, we all learn about um, yeah, yeah. from in architecture school. And so I thought that could be a really cool idea for the chapel because in a, in a wedding, it's already focused on two people, right? Yeah. You're already wanting to focus attention only on a couple and so if we angle the walls and kind of create that forced perspective and then we make the back just doors that can fully open it kind of is like a megaphone too so it's kind of like you can have a much bigger audience outside that can see yeah. that smaller just the couple inside <clears throat> and then i thought i wanted the space under the couple to feel more special so i created that as like a double height space and then you can't see that if you're in the audience, but if you're the couple, there's a double height space above you. Right, because it, it keeps going up. Yeah. Here, you just can't see. It works, it's in it, it's it's like, I was trying to evoke those ideas of of like the steeple, right? Mm -hmm. That we all, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're all familiar with it in a church that's usually at the front of the church. Um, I thought we can kind of create a steeple, it creates this like very, very narrow, tiny double height space just above the couple. And then also, like, let's point it towards this tree on the site so it kind of also feels like you're connecting to nature. And let's make the front and the back fully operable doors. <laughs> so you can, like, catch breezes. You can, like, you don't need electricity. You don't need, you know, you don't need to pay for lighting. And, and it turns out, you know, they have a pretty active Instagram. And they have even, they have weddings there all the time with, like, two and 300 people. Wow. Sometimes they're like they're outside and then like near the tree, like they'll set up all the 
all the chairs on that side and the couple is in front of that steeple form. And sometimes the chairs go the other way and the chairs go all the way out into that like courtyard space. And the couple is at the end. And so they use, they use the site in all different kinds of ways. And I think, yeah, the shape of the building is kind of meant to kind of echo or reference like house, like a very, like a human scale, right? House and church kind of at the same time. Well, I think your description of it is absolutely spot on. A, a non-denominational religious building. And that's exactly what it invokes. It's, it's, it's got a respect and definitely a religious feel to it, but it doesn't say what that is. Right. And that allows it to be any special space. I, I think it's amazing. It's, it's super simple. You know, it's just kind of this folded origami type form, but the way you describe the functionality of it and, and how the design actually serves a, a purpose, you know, towards that functionality. Yeah, it's, I, I didn't even notice until you're describing it how it, it is kind of megaphone shaped. Uh, yeah. You know, how the, the walls taper in, you know, towards one side and, and that's where the couple stands. And, you know, and you're right. I mean, looking at this image, you do kind of have that forced perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's it awesome. It feels bigger. It, it looks so, again, looks so simple, but it's not. It's not quite as simple as, as the it fl- looks. The floor slopes, like, with the landscape so that you, uh, do, so you don't have this, like, huge step at the end, right? It just kind of mm-hmm. stays with the landscape. And then, but the, the walls that are vertical are, they're falling even faster, right? So you still get that force, and, they, and they're obviously tapering towards the couple, right? So you you do have that sense that the space is much bigger than it actually is. And this image that we're looking at right here has the chairs, but um, and this is what they had at first, but then they built the benches that I had designed. And so this, the, I have another set of photographs after they did the benches. The benches yeah. And the benches are also, they have like very slight angles, uh, but they... Mm. Um, Looks a lot cleaner. This is yeah. fizzy. And you get the bench, and they use they use these chairs for the larger ceremonies, right? Sure. And yeah. then if it's a smaller one, they just use the benches, and the benches have these angles where there's a bunch of configurations. They 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 can fit together along the sidewalls. You can fit them together and create like larger benches and platforms. Um, yeah, the the way that they work um, ge- geometrically, there's a lot of flexibility in them as well. Yeah. Um, so that's what's, I mean, th- that's the part that's fun for me is like when you start getting into the geometries of it, then I don't know if like other ideas open up and you can do, you know, things that, um, I don't you, like you said, you can like play with people's perception of space and super cool. Yeah. No, uh, that it definitely like I was, I was gravitated immediately towards this, this project is, it's really unique. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it looks like <laughs> just about all the ones that you do are just completely unique. I I kind of do want to talk about the hive really quick if we can. Sure. Um, I have one more too. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. Um, so question question for you though, kind of a segue, but okay. Um, what do you think is a is a is the recipe for a, a successful project? A successful project. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, for me, the best projects have really great clients clients Mm -hmm. and a client does not mean 
like a great client doesn't mean they have to have a lot of money. It doesn't mean that it has to be a really interesting program, right? I mean, we're, they, like an ADU, a guest house, like these are these are basic programs that a lot of families need, right? <clears throat> a, like a really great client is one that um, I feel like there's a lot of trust where they understand that not everything is going to be solved the first time around like Mm -hmm. they know that we're like gonna go on a journey together Mm -hmm. and they know that like they're gonna participate in it and but they also trust you they trust that you have their best interests in mind and that that you that i they trust that i know what they want and it's just like there's not a lot of um I don't worry that they're going to be upset if I make a mistake because I make mistakes. I make mistakes and then sure. and then a lot of times those mistakes are things that we get to solve together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then they make mistakes. Like on like on the hive, you're talking this client <clears throat> insisted on having a bathtub and then like once they saw the bathtub installed, they didn't like it. After I told them I didn't think they should have a bathtub, right? So like the client makes mistakes and it's like it's kind of Subcontractors make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. It's like, it's kind of just agreeing that we're all have good intentions Mm -hmm. and we care about the project and we're all going to work together to try to make it as great as it can be. Yeah. Um, And so that's, that's, that's what it takes to have a good project is to have a good client. Good client and a good team. Like yeah, said. exactly. A good, good team. team. And then communication, which you already mentioned. Right. The communication, the honest team, and the collaboration. If you've got that, that's probably 90% of the whole thing. You can make you, you almost can't make a bad project when you have that working for you. When people are not, like, finger-pointing and, cre- like, creating conflict. When everybody is just working to make knows that everybody has the intention to make the project great and you just and you're all working towards that goal yeah yeah so um, i love the siding <laughs> what what is that material so that is cedar it's a cedar shake and believe it or not we got that material for free like can you believe that wow so um the that's crazy right so Beautiful. the um the the owner um, was th- so this is an ADU that's behind a bungalow and the owner was living in the bungalow but she and her husband are filmmakers and or, or they worked for it worked in TV and film so they were away from their house a lot so they they were like we don't want to leave it empty all the time but we're off like three months out of the year and we need a place to stay and they really love their prop they really love their property also in East Austin so they decided um, they could rent out the main house if they could build a small like ADU for themselves in the back that they could live in because they didn't need the whole house three months out of the year that they could live in th- three months out of the year and then they could also rent it out when they weren't there. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was kind of the program and they, their main bungalow, um, when I started the design process, they were getting the bungalow ready to rent. And they were replacing the roof, and they took off a corrugated metal roof, and they found shingles oh. underneath the roof. So that's the reclaimed roof of the bungalow that's on the property. Well, not exactly. So um, huh. we pulled. They sent me all these photos of the shingles that they pulled off, and like piles of them, oh. right? 
And they were like, can you reuse this material? And so my plan was to use it for the sighting, but there wasn't enough. There, there wasn't quite enough. And they were also a little bit flimsy. So I started calling around to all the roofers I knew that had worked with prior. And it turned out, you guys might know him. There's a roofer who also does contracting. Um, his name is Mark Rayberg. Uh, Our Builders is his company. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he said um, he said he had done a job in Austin, I don't know, 20 years prior. And he took all these cedar shakes off of the of, off a roof, and he said they'd been sitting in his storage for twenty years. <laughs> wow, wow! And he said at this point he thought they might be kindling in there, like he was afraid they might catch on fire or something. Because uh, so he said, just take them, just get them out of here. <laughs> and <Wow. clears throat> and it was they were like wider, sturdier. It was like basically like a better version of yeah, the shakes yeah. that we took off of the main, of, of the bungalow. But I wouldn't have, I don't even know if I would have thought to look for that material if the owner hadn't said like, Hey, look at this material that we oh, have. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, so it, I think this is like what I like about designing and contracting is like these stories, mm-hmm. like you can kind of take advantage of things like that. So yeah, ended up working out perfect. Yeah. Um, that's, that's super, super cool. And, and kind of describe the the structure and the shape, if you will, because is I'm guessing just based on our conversation, there's a there's a reason behind the 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 way this is shaped. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes, there is. So the <clears throat> so the hive is the the hive is the first new construction project that I also contracted. So this was this was basically after I did this that I was like, oh, I, re- I really like this. I like this contracting thing. So in, in designing this, this is the one that we like bid out to a bunch of people initially, and then the, all the bids came back high, and then the project got tabled for like a year mm. before the client came back and was like, okay, how can we do this? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, why don't you let me try to bid it out? <clears throat> so... The but her original her, so her lot in East Austin with a with the original bungalow, it had had an addition on the back with a huge wraparound porch, and there was a driveway that came all the way in. So, the lot didn't have a lot of impervious cover left. Um, it had three hundred and twenty square feet <laughs> of impervious cover left to be exact, and that's only when I took out like took out like a the sidewalk like uh-huh. like the front walk already. Yeah, I had yeah. to take that out. And then, um, and also ADUs have to have their own parking space Mm -hmm. or maybe not anymore, but they did at the time. So we had to add that parking as well. So it was like factoring that in. Um, and she also had, um, there was an angled utility easement that ran through the back of her property that created a sharp angle across the back. And so I knew, and that's, that is that angle, that back angle that you see there. So... Um, and she wanted this one here. Yeah. So it's actually, you can see it better from an aerial view. So it's actually, you can't quite tell yeah, from here. It's, it's, it's the back edge. Yeah. This, this, this back wall here. No, it's, um, it's, you, you wouldn't be able to tell okay. from that view, okay. but it's, it's, it's the right side of that. The okay. right side of that is creating an angle. Gotcha. And if you, um, so this, this, again, I think this view is, is maybe deceptive in a way, but like that right corner keeps going back at that angle of the angled utility mm-hmm. of the, ang- of the sure. easement. And you can't tell, but it's, 
that hive is growing in that direction mm -hmm. that is hidden from this view. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and you could maybe see it from the, another exterior view. Like, yeah, um, maybe the very first exterior shot was at the front. Was the first. No, there oh, it is. One. So you can't tell, but um, <clears throat> you can't really tell from there either. But you can see from here that that porch that's on their main house in the back on the left-hand side. This here. Yeah. And that porch was an addition that they had hired someone else. And the owner said, we really like reusing materials. And so, and they had hired someone else to do that. And that, that porch addition and, and, and that addition in the main house had like kind of a Japanese feel to it. And that porch right there, that had doors laid sideways as the railing. I don't know if you can tell. I can throw that right there. Yeah, that's yeah. a door laid sideways. <laughs> okay. um, so oh, that was also a lot of inspiration for the hive, is that we use a lot of reused materials, a lot of recycled materials um, for that reason. But so the angled utility easement and the impervious cover at 320 square foot they wanted it to feel like a large one bedroom. They wanted laundry, they wanted an outdoor shower, they wanted bike storage, they wanted an office, they wanted a cook's kitchen. So I knew that if I was confined to 320 square feet, that I wasn't gonna fit everything in that. And yeah. so I was gonna have to have a second floor that was like leaned away from that footprint. That And so, so that's when I came up with the idea to like, lean the walls so I, I had there's three walls that are vertical and then i thought i'll lean one wall out because i've got to have like a stair that's to code and then like that's gonna push gotta push out a little bit to fit a bathroom up there i'll push out a little bit this way to fit a bedroom and then the living room was so small i was like i gotta lean that wall in the back of the living room a little bit so that the living room feels bigger because yeah. <laughs> like the floor the floor the footprint is so tiny but if i lean that wall it'll feel a lot bigger yeah so right. so for those listening it's it's kind of like an upside down pyramid right right <laughs> all the walls are tapering out from a small footprint yep yeah that's a good way of putting it i never <laughs> thought of it that way but that's so again you know typical the, this your style there's there's this massive problem and it's and you're cheating the system here you're, you're like how do we solve this we got a tiny footprint but you know we, we just push the walls out and we make the second floor bigger and we're leaning everything out. Like it's, there's, there's a reason, you know, why it's shaped the way it is. It's, it's not just to give it this whimsical look. It's like, this is solving the problem. It's, but it's, it's, it's architecture because yes. solving the problem, people could have yes. just done a flat wall up and then stepped out and gone up. And sure. That would look boring. Exactly. This looks awesome. It wouldn't yeah. have even felt as, as big, right? It wouldn't. No. No, because it's like it's some. There's something about the leaning of the walls that really just expands your perception of space. Mm -hmm. And um, and actually, like something I thought about in retrospect that I talk that I think I talk about a little bit now is it reminds me of that like Vitruvian man that you kind of learn about in school. Uh, is it Da Vinci that did it? And so, or yeah, or, or maybe I guess it's Vitruvius, and where it, like his arms and his legs mm -hmm. like make a circle, uh -huh. right? And so, what you kind of learn from that diagram is you need more space around the middle of your body, mm -hmm. and you don't need as much space around your feet or around your head. And so, I kind of you, I mean, not 
I wasn't thinking about that when I designed that, but I think about it afterwards. Like, like you, like this is a picture of the bedroom. Like that bedroom feels bigger if you have more space kind of at your eye level, kind of at the middle of your body when you're sitting in that bed. Sure. And you don't like that. You don't need a lot of room at the, at your feet or at the head to, for that room to feel that big. Um, and that room to me feels like a pretty big space. And if you if you scroll down a little bit, you can see the floor. I mean, there's not a lot of floor area there. Yeah. I think there's like less than two feet of floor area at the end of that bedroom. <laughs> wow. Um, but that was like, so because they were on a tight budget, it was helpful because the area of floor material that we needed was pretty small. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we got to buy this like charred wood from Delta oh, Metalworks, which is super expensive, yeah. but we only needed like... 200 square feet and it made the whole place like you know we got to use some nicer materials because we didn't need as much square footage because we kept everything really tight so like here's the bathroom again in this space like look at the look at the floor area it's tiny there's not even two feet of space in front of the sink yeah it's like a camper (laughs) it's like a camper bathroom but it gets bigger but where you're standing where your eye level is it feels big mm-hmm. and you've got bringing some natural Lots light, of light. Yeah. and it, it, it's like, it actually feels spacious when you're in there, even though it's tiny. Yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. Thanks. Yeah. It's, I wish I could have seen this one in person. They rent it out on Airbnb every once in a while. It's uh, not that expensive. Okay. It's not too expensive. <laughs> they let me stay there once and it was fun. Oh. Yeah. But I learned a lot. It, it helped to have that client. So that client, Gave me a lot of freedom. They're filmmakers, so they understood. She actually likened the pro- the whole process to filmmaking. Because hmm. she was like, it reminds me of when I make a film. Like, you, I start with a script. Mm-hmm. I kind of think I know what's going to happen. But when you're filming, she's like, you have to, like, be aware of what else is going on around you. And, like, draw, bring, draw from that. Mm-hmm. And so she understood that and, like, gave me that freedom. Yeah. And that's that's the only reason... That's great. ...that this project even exists is because she kind of let me take it where yeah. it needed to go. Yeah, I'm glad she did. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I appreciate her a lot for that. Yeah. I, I have one other thing okay. I wanted to ask about. Sure. Yeah. Pedestrian geometries. Okay, sure. Tell us about those. Okay, so pedestrian geometries is a project that I did in collaboration with an artist, um, Aaron Curtis. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's for um, Art in Public Places. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with their program? I'm not, but I, I looked at some of your pedestrian geometry pieces. Okay. That's kind of what I thought is, okay, this is a public art. But that, you know, just to brag about your portfolio a little bit, I mean, the residential, the commercial, the public space work you've got, that's that's broad and yeah. they're unique and quite varied in the different things that they are. Right. And so they caught, yeah, there they are. That caught my attention. Where do they put those? Where do they? So those are downtown um, on East, or sorry, not East. They're all along Third Street, downtown. So if you walk down or drive down Third Street, you'll see them like at every block or so, there'll be one or two or three of them. Wow. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go find them. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So Erin is a is a visual artist, and her visual art looks a lot like this. So this is really you know, she took the lead 
on the kind of visual language of these. And then, um, you know, she didn't know anything about building anything three-dimensionally. So, and, um, so, and I had already had a relationship with Elgin Butler. So I had suggested, like, at the, from the start, I had suggested the material. Like, Elgin Butler that has this really great material, um, these, like, glazed bricks, and they're local. And they have all these colors, and we can create these colors and patterns. And so she really liked that idea. And then, um, you know, we, I talked to her about, like, let's come up with certain basic cuts, right? Let's come up with just a few different kinds of cuts. Let's, um, and then I found, like, the masons that made them, and I kind of oversaw that relationship with, like, how can we, like, let's prototype these and make these, and because we had a very strict budget with the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but she took the lead on, um, and she should, because as a visual artist in that, in that relationship took the lead on like this is the end design like pattern color put together thing that I want them to look like um but yeah but it was it was uh, a collaboration that I did with her and it was fun I really loved it I mean and again it was like this was around the same time as the hive so I got to again kind of explore those construction skills mm-hmm. um and so that's it so that's a floor that's a, a plan mm-hmm. that last one is a plan of third street and some of these have gotten moved around and hit but like so that's <laughs> one that you might see and then you can see the that site plan of oh, all of third bottom. street yeah yeah where they're dotted up and down that street art for the sake of art yeah, yeah. Art. they're really neat art for public places that's yeah. super cool yeah well, I think I want to end on one last question, okay. which is, what do you love most about what you do? What do I love most about what I do? I mean, I love when clients or other people that get to experience the spaces, like getting to see how much joy spaces that I design can bring to them. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like, Absolutely. As builders, it makes yes. complete sense. So, yeah. like, I'm always happiest when clients at the end of a project just tell me how much they love being in this space and what they love about it. Um, I love when people tell me they wish they lived there. You know, like, when someone visits a space, oh, I wish I lived here. You know, like, that kind of stuff just makes me feel... so. Or when people get to visit spaces. Mm-hmm. It just feels so good to know that something we build or design can have like such a positive impact on someone's like daily life or Mm -hmm. yeah. And like, that's why I do what I do. Awesome. Yeah. Love, love every part of that. Um, Nicole, thank you for coming on. Cheers to you. Cheers. Thank you Um, for having me. Yeah. I'm glad to know you. Glad to have uh, met you and get you on. So I really appreciate your time. Indeed. Thank, thank, thank you very much. much. Thank you so much for having me. It's my, it's my pleasure.